Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest. We've got a very special show today. We're not just talking about real estate. We're talking about the operation of a particular asset class. Earlier this week, there was a front page story on the Wall Street Journal boldly announcing that there were 10,000 people who died in senior care homes. Today, we're talking about assisted living. All the way from Dallas, Texas, welcome to the show, Low Hornbuckle. Hey, Victor. Thank you so much for having me on the show. How are you today? I'm great. and glad to have you here. You are a partner. You are a thought leader in the world of assisted living, and I thought it would be really useful for our listeners to talk about assisted living. Certainly, it's making headlines not in a good way all over the world. It's become an area for massive illness and death. Uh, many of the care homes all over North America and around the world, we've seen massive outbreaks of COVID-19. What's it like for you as an operator? And I know, fortunately, you have not had any outbreaks in any of your facilities, but it's not just an accident. It's a result of, I'm sure, tremendous care that you're taking. What What are your thoughts? Yeah. So I think there's maybe a lot to unpack in that question. So just for the, um, the listeners that are both local to the United States and of of course, I know you have an international following. Um, the term care home um, in a lot of countries uh, usually means almost all forms of long-term care. So whereas in the United States, care home might mean like a residential assisted living facility, a care home could describe a nursing home or assisted living or a memory care facility in the UK and Canada. It seems like some of the countries with socialized medicine have adopted the term uh, care home and it's kind of a catch-all. So just so there's no uh, language barrier or language uh, challenge, uh, for our purposes, uh, we'll be talking about long-term care in general. And then when we deviate from other models, we'll, we'll make that clear. And I appreciate you mentioning that. So the first thing Thing I really want to say on the subject of not having any cases is we really ought want to be cautiously optimistic. We've been both vigilant about doing some things that we can talk about that has helped uh, reduce the spread of COVID in our particular set of homes. But beyond that, there's some advantages to our model. But the thing I always want to say is I don't ever want to get too cocky because the reality is, is that, you know, if this ravaged a country like Italy or ravaged Spain or the United States is the epicenter or gave China problems or, you know, so many countries and so many organizations and institutions have really struggled with this. It's not fair for us to expect not to have problems and challenges. So our whole goal here is to do the best job we can and to know that at the end of the day, we did everything we could do within reason to keep this virus out of the front door. So in terms of um, some of the reasons why, I think the simplest answer is this. The number one way you can reduce spread of a virus, any virus for that matter, is to have less people come from the outside. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you have a building with 200 people in it and they have 200 employees, then that's 200 opportunities for the community to come through the front door. Whereas if you have a six or eight bed facility with say six or eight employees, that's only six or eight opportunities to come to the front door. The name of the game is not letting the virus through the front door, especially with something um, as transmissible as COVID-19. And so I think smaller facilities are really having a really great run. And I want to be cautious. We have taken data from Texas, Florida, and Colorado. These are some states that I have some connections in, and we're kind of parsing the data. And right now, I am very comfortable saying that smaller facilities are performing better relative to big buildings. Now, we need to revisit that when this is all said and done, when this out 
break when this pandemic is over, you know, that's when we'll truly know. But I am comfortable saying at this point, based on initial data, that smaller environments are outperforming big buildings. And so one of the recommendations I tell families is pick the smallest setting in which you feel like your social your socialization needs will be met, right? So some people have to be around four or 500 other people. If that's your choice, that's your choice. But if you can manage to be around eight or 10 other people, then I would highly recommend that because those smaller environments do have a huge advantage over the, uh, over the big buildings that have you know, several hundred opportunities for transmission. Certainly the numbers help, but are there other procedures, other policies that you've implemented that further reduce the risk? So for example, do care workers work only in one facility or are they traveling from one facility to the next on any given day of the week? Yes, that's a great question. I think there's a couple of a couple of key points. So most states, through various guidelines and through uh, rules, sometimes by judicial decree, have banned cross-contaminating staff. So if you have a staff that works at one facility, they can't work at the other facility. So a lot of that's been been taken care of legally. We did early on say, hey, let's be really even before it was a law. We said, hey, let's just be very cautious about having employees go from facility to facility just because one person could then be the challenge. Um, The other thing that we did was we were pretty early. We actually asked our staff to start wearing uh, masks prior to it being a law. And we also went toward uh, a a no visitation policy unless it was medically necessary uh, prior to it being a law. So we did a few things faster than other places. Again, I think sometimes smaller companies, one of the advantages we have is we can be nimble, you know, and so you can respond to things much faster than big companies that have to bounce up to a boardroom in New York and then disseminate back down and try to communicate those guidelines. Um, There's a lot of other things that, that sort of matter. For example, One of the reasons why uh, nursing homes in particular have been really, really, really overrun by COVID, it it has been, in my opinion, in large part due to the fact that 70% of money uh, that funds nursing homes is Medicaid. And oftentimes in Medicaid, you're going to be looking at a shared bedroom. So imagine a situation in which you have a, a place that's very full of people. So we have the big problem working against us. And it's really hard to socially distance yourself. So if one resident gets infected and they share a room with another resident, it's almost impossible for that other resident not to catch it. So one thing that's really good about sort of a boutique model like ours is almost every resident has a private bedroom. And so that's obviously going to be another example of how you can kind of keep things at bay. Nursing homes now are probably, I haven't verified this myself, but I imagine nursing homes are probably moving away from shared rooms at present. You know, so if they have extra rooms because occupancy is down or whatever the case may be, hopefully they're moving residents to private rooms because that will certainly do a good job of reducing spread once it enters the community. I love that. So you made the distinction between skilled nursing homes and assisted living. What are some of the other things you've implemented from a procedural standpoint, whether it's an assisted living facility, whether it's a dementia memory care facility, what have you had to implement? Yeah, great question. So I think one of the things that really has been important um, industry-wide and something we've really embraced is technology. And technology really solves two problems. So the first is this. If our physician needs to physically look at a resident, they don't actually have to physically come to the facility to do that. They can utilize telemedicine. So, you know, setting up portals where your doctor can can take a look at a resident without actually actually having to physically come is one way to do that. And of course, that gives you the added bonus of not having to choose between medical care in a pandemic or having to have a doctor come in and have the risk of transmission. The other thing and the thing that's often overlooked 
something we talk about all the time, is social isolation is in some ways as bad or worse than the virus itself. We know that social isolation leads to a lot of problems in seniors. And it leads to a lot of problems in the general population, but it's especially hard on seniors. They're very vulnerable to depression, you know, having eating problems, being lonely, uh, having all kinds of negative uh, depressed thoughts when they're isolated. And so one of the cool things about technology is, is that you can, you can FaceTime with a family member. You can utilize technology to do those things. One of the things we did as a company is we realized very early on that it was going to be very hard on family members in this situation because a lot of our family members visit every day. Some visit multiple times a week and now all of a sudden visitations are no longer allowed. Now, at present, they're not allowed because of legal reasons. Our judge has decided it was illegal. Most states have non-medically necessary visitation is illegal. And so we said, how do we fix this? And so the first thing we did was we sent out a letter to all the families and let them know, hey, this is what's happening. You know, we're going to utilize technology. We encourage them to do cool things like do window visits. So they actually will, you know, if mom or dad's in a wheelchair, the staff will take mom or dad up to the window. The family can be on the other side of the window. We're, we're socially distanced. Technically, we're physically distanced and we're not, we're socially connected. They can jump on a phone. They can FaceTime. They can do all those things. But the other element of that is, is that we take pride in communication. Communication is a really important part of this business that is probably the most overlooked part of the business by our competitors. And so, as an example, we said, listen, people are going to assume the worst in these situations. Let's communicate at least once a week. So, I don't care what the situation is, good, bad, negative, neutral, whatever the situation is, I want every single person to have a conversation about their loved one at least once a week so they know what's going on. Hey, mom had a really good meal. Hey, mom had a tough day. I, I wanted to send you this picture. Whatever the case is, because it lets them know that we are thinking about them as well, and it lets us be proactive with problems and situations as they arise so that family members aren't left to wonder kind of what's going on behind closed doors when I can't visit. So technology plays a really, really, really integral role and all those things. And I think the other piece of the puzzle boil down to ratios of direct care staff. So one of the signature things about small facilities and about our company, Sageoke in particular, is we recommend to choose a facility that has a one to four or a one to six ratio, somewhere in between. And what that means is how many caregivers they have per resident. Now, first off, you can imagine the care is better when that happens, but imagine a situation in which someone is infected, if you've got a 1 to 10 or a 1 to 12 or a 1 to 15 ratio, it's very difficult to dedicate any resources to try to keep that person isolated. Now imagine that that person that's infected has dementia and they're prone to wandering. You could imagine that could be a nightmare situation where you have a person, you know, moving around a facility through no fault of their own they're kind of a super spreader type of type of event. And so for that, you have to have really good ratios so that you can have your team, you do what they can to try to minimize a situation like that. So for me, the name of the game is keep it out of the building. If it comes in the building, do the best you can to make sure that it doesn't spread to your residents and your staff and then utilize technology so you can have the doctors involved and you can have the families involved so that they're not in the dark about what's happening on the day-to-day -day basis. I love that. And certainly one of the things that I've observed in the healthcare system, and it doesn't matter where it is anywhere in the world, one of the most important things in terms of outcomes for, for patients, for the elderly is, especially if they're not able to self-advocate, is who is advocating for them. And you've maintained the communication with the family members who are able to advocate on behalf of those 
folks that are maybe bedridden who maybe can't advocate for themselves. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, that's really one of the things that when I'm talking about with people about the difference between assisted living and, and dementia care, you know, in assisted living, almost all the clients can advocate can be their own advocate. You know, if something simple, you burn their toast and they don't like it, they can say, "Hey, you burn my toast. Can you make me some more?" Well, that may not be true in dementia care. So you could obviously imagine, you know, in a in a pandemic and in a very tense situation where not only do you have the virus, you have all the anxiety around the government decisions around the virus. It's a very tense time, and so being able to have a team that's willing to advocate on behalf of the resident and be able to engage the family who's so used to having to play that role. It, it, it's really the difference in a lot of times between life and death. And it's really the difference between some outcomes for the resident versus poor outcomes. And it's just something that we believe in very strongly because, you know, ultimately if someone can't be their own advocate, someone has to be, and we take it on ourselves to do the best we can to be an advocate on their behalf. I love that. Well, there's a lot of people that have been eyeing the assisted living space as a great investment class, looking at it really the same way you would look at a piece of paper as a treasury bill or another vehicle that's going to give you some rate of return, some rate of yield. And I certainly don't look at it that way. You know, you and I are partners on some projects. And I very much believe that this is an active business that happens to generate net income, which is great. So you've got to do well and do good. But at the core of it is an operating business where having an expert operator at the core of it is the critical element. What would you say to folks that might be considering investing in assisted living? And by the way, we have nothing, we have no investment opportunities at this point. But what would you say to someone who is looking to invest in assisted living as an asset class? What what should they look for? So that's a good question. Um, one of the things that I've really tried to do is I try to step back and ask myself a question. You know, how is our world going to look different um, when we get to normal and whatever that may be? And I've kind of taken to calling it the new normal because I'm of the opinion that um, this pandemic and the things that have happened around it could be generational. They could lead to huge changes. And that's not just true of assisted living. That's true of a lot of businesses. You know, how many businesses are going to close down their physical offices and move to an online setting? How many people are going to readily go to a movie theater when this is all over, right? It's a lot easier to, to watch something at your TV at your house. It's less expensive. You know, you don't have to deal with parking. And frankly, there's less of a chance of a, of, of a pandemic event happening in your life. So when you think about that in the overall system, I don't think assisted living is any different. Fundamentally, the way I try to uh, tell people I think COVID's going to change uh, how our world works is a lot of things that were already true are now being accelerated. So I've been of the opinion that the big, the big building model, the model of one caregiver for every 10 people, one caregiver for every 12 people, big institutional settings with shiny chandeliers and really nice gyms and pools and underwater treadmills, all that stuff looks good, but really what it boils down to is great care, great food, and great communication. So like you, I would advocate that if anybody was going to invest in assisted living or, or memory care or independent living or a skilled nursing opportunity, they really need to understand, is that opportunity on trend? And for me, I think the trend has become very clear, especially if the data comes in like I think it will, that smaller environments and, and, and more boutique environments and more intimate environments will, will eventually be the trend and the direction this industry is headed. It's been doing that for a while now anyway, but when you add on the fact that I think there's going to be very strong uh, evidence to indicate that small settings did much better during the COVID pandemic, 
then I think it's just going to be icing on the cake because if you're choosing between two options that are relatively equal in your mind, if one option has a better chance of improving infection control or a better chance of reducing mom or dad from falling, it's kind of an easy choice. And so obviously as an investor, you would like a product that consumers want more than the other product. And so I think the COVID situation could over the long term be very impactful for the way senior housing and the way assisted living and memory care, the way all those things are laid out in the future. And I think the future is going to dictate smaller, more intimate settings. And if that's true, then the types of businesses that we do are going to do very well in those. And the more commoditized institutional type settings are going to do very poorly, in my opinion. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a tremendous amount of sense. And, you know, we see it in multiple different industries. And I like the way you said that we're, we're seeing an acceleration of things that were already on trend, like takeout dining is being accelerated massively. Uh, Now it took a a pandemic to force it, but how many restaurants will reopen when this is over? And will the restaurants that remain, are they going to be empty or are they going to be overrun because there's so few of them? Nobody knows at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Beyond all that, I think right now we're, as a society, we're all struggling with the idea that the government has told us we can't do certain things. What we don't know is once the government says, hey, you're allowed to do those things, what percentage of consumers will choose not to? And that's going to make a really big difference in how this story plays out because people don't necessarily understand that if 20% of people say, hey, I'm not going to movie theaters, I'm not eating in restaurants, or in the case of this conversation, I'm not going to put mom or dad in this big box assisted living facility, that's going to change an entire industry. Most industries cannot afford to lose 20% of their customers and still be a successful uh, successful company or successful industry. So it's not going to take a lot to cause really big changes. And so my hope is that in our business, people will really reevaluate their priorities because at the end of the day, nobody's going to do well in a pandemic because of their gymnasium or because of their pool or because of their chandelier. They're going to do well because the environment was structured well. They're going to do well because of good ratios. They're going to do well because the leadership team was on top of things. They're going to do well because mom or dad was in a private bedroom. You know, those are the things that are going to matter. Did they embrace technology or were they kind of a dinosaur in that regard? Those are the things that are going to dictate success in this environment. And I think a lot of people are going to have really long memories about some of these facilities that it's not their fault. You know, and one thing I do, I think it's worth saying is there's a really perverse thing that's happening in healthcare right now. And I definitely want to address it which is that nurses and doctors are rightfully labeled as heroes, but we have this tendency to forget about the fact that we've got caregivers and nurse aides and janitorial staff and maintenance staff that are also putting their lives on the line in the very same environments and in some cases taking the same risk and they're not talked about a lot. So I think that's an important distinction to make that we need to recognize that all healthcare workers that are putting themselves on the line and essential workers should be celebrated for the work they've done, but also We don't blame hospitals for failing in a pandemic, but we get frustrated that nursing homes and assisted living and other types of long-term care environments when they have problems in this situation. And a lot of that is through no fault of their own. A lot of these companies, if they try to get personal protective equipment, they're not on the top of the list. Personal protective equipment is given to hospitals and, and frontline places and the nursing homes and the assisted living facilities. They're kind of low on the totem pole. And frankly, it's a disservice because the best thing we can do is if we are properly protected and have the right equipment, then we can prevent spread and try to keep people out of the hospital system. So I do think it's important to not blame 
the very system that everyone's a part of for, for the failure and recognize that there are better ways to do things. And I do think it's important for companies to be smart and create a model that's effective. But at the end of the day, I don't blame a big building for having this problem because they're just a part of a system that failed. We're seeing systemic failure. And our whole thing is this, if we can rise above and outperform the market, meaning that if a certain percentage of the population is going to get infected, if we can avoid being part of that percentage and beat the odds, that's all we can ask for. And so that's our goal is just outperform the market, but also being mindful of the fact I don't want to cast blame or you know aspersions against anybody that's had a problem because COVID is a very transmissive virus. It's beaten a lot of really powerful institutions and countries. And you know I don't want to sound like I'm being hard on people that frankly just got put in a very difficult situation when we failed to contain this thing. I love that. I think that's very, very wise advice. So Lo, if folks want to learn more, if they want to get in touch, what's the best way? Yeah, absolutely. So I've, I've written a book um, called The Say Joke Story, and it's a, kind of a walking people through how we made the decisions that we made to set up the company the way that we did. They can get a copy of that for free. And all they have to do is go to Goodhorn Capital, G-O-O-D, Horn, H-O-R-N, Capital.com. And you just put in your first name and your email, and it will give you a copy of the book and PDF for free. They're also welcome to email me if they have questions, happy to help. Uh, my name is Lowe, L-O-E at the, T-H-E, sageoak.com, S-A-G-E-O-A-K, thesageoak.com. They can uh, shoot me an email and I can try to answer any questions. And as you mentioned, uh, we don't have any investment opportunities currently available, but I'm happy to have a conversation. And, and when the time is right, we'll be happy to discuss you know, possible investments in the future if it's a good fit for both parties. I love it. Well, thank you, Lo, for sharing your thoughts. I, I think I uh, love today's discussion. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Lo at Lo at thesageoak.com. Download his free book at Goodhorn Capital as well. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. 